Good morning, Sovereign Grace Church. Uh, if we haven't met yet, by the way, my name is Dustin Smetona. I serve as one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace Church, and it's my privilege now to open God's Word with you. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. If you're new to the Bible, we are glad you're here. You're welcome to jump in and learn with us this morning. This is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version we use, you can get a physical copy from the lobby if you would like, or just punch in Acts 14 ESV on your mobile device. We'll be reading a whole chapter, so you will want to have this in front of you. Acts 14, while you find your place this week is our final Sunday in Acts before we break to study the letter of Galatians. We'll pick Acts back up in about the middle of next year, middle of 2023. And this switch is on purpose for, for the churches being established through Paul and Barnabas's ministry right here in Acts 14 are the very churches that are going to receive the letter to the Galatians that we will begin studying next week. We're watching these churches be planted. So this week, we get to complete Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. They're moving from town to town in southern Galatia. This is modern-day Turkey. They're preaching the gospel. They're making disciples. And of course, they are meeting resistance along the way. We should notice at this point that they are getting farther and farther and farther away from Jerusalem. May, may, we wouldn't notice that as we just read all these names of weird cities on the page. But, but they're getting farther and farther and farther away from Jerusalem, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, he said in chapter 1. And so today, our intrepid missionaries find themselves in the middle of a world with no ties to Judaism, a Gentile world, and this has a noticeable effect on their ministry, which we will see as we read and study this chapter. So, Follow along with me in your Bibles as I read all 28 verses of Acts chapter 14, and then I'll pray. Acts 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe cities of Lycaonia and of the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. 
And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." Last paragraph, verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Very words of God. Would you join me in a brief prayer for understanding? Lord, we ask you now to bless the preaching of your word. I ask, Lord, that you would bless it so that my friends here would be encouraged in their faith, their souls would be strengthened by the words in this passage, and that for those here who have not yet called upon you, not yet looked to you, trusted in your Son, that today would be a day of salvation for them as the word is preached and has its intended effect upon our hearts. So send your spirit to work in power here in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us for our study through the book of Acts, you will notice that Acts chapter 14 looks and sounds like many of the chapters in Acts that have come before it. 
Christians show up in a town, they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as they do, God validates their preaching with spectacular signs and wonders. The townspeople react to this with a mixed reaction. In fact, the summary in verse 4 is very typical, verse 4 of our chapter, but the people of the city were divided. Some love what they're doing, some hate what they're doing, but the apostles make do with what they've got. They, they make disciples, they plant churches with those who respond in faith, and eventually they're persecuted and run out of town. So they set up shop in the next town, start preaching the gospel, and the cycle continues. Preaching, healing, conversions, controversy, opposition, move on to the next town, wash, soak, rinse, repeat. This chapter has all of those elements, and we've seen them throughout the book so far, but There is something in this chapter that's wildly different from the others. It's not the healing. You might have thought that. There's been plenty of healings. There's something else that's very different right in the middle of the chapter. The sermon. Paul preached a sermon last chapter. If you remember, it was so long that Pastor Eric basically had to skip it. It was 26 verses of sermon in the last chapter, almost as long as our entire chapter, just the sermon. This sermon is three verses. Last chapter, Paul gave a survey of the entire Bible, naming off people most of us have never even heard of, and quoting Bible verses. This time, no mention of the Bible. Last time, he explained the identity of Jesus Christ and the events surrounding his death and resurrection. This time, there's no explicit reference to Jesus. Why on earth are these two sermons so different? Well, part of the reason is that Luke didn't record the entire sermon in Acts chapter 14. This is just a summary of what they preached, a tribute to the actual sermon. And for those of you tenacious D fans, you know the song, a tribute to the greatest song in the world. This is not the greatest song in the world. It's just a tribute. This is not Paul and Barnabas' sermon. It's just a tribute, a summary. But still, the sermon, even the summary of it, is vastly different in content and tone than the sermon in the last chapter. And look, these men are filled with the same Spirit of God in both chapters, but apparently to preach under the power of the Spirit doesn't mean you're a one-trick pony. There's only one gospel message to proclaim, sure, but we're finding out here very different ways to go about proclaiming it. As I studied Acts chapter 14 and compared it with the sermon from the last chapter, I had two big realizations. The first one is that the Gentile audience in this chapter is closer to our contemporary audience than any other audience in Acts. These are non-Jewish people. They don't know the Bible. (laughs) They don't know God. They believe there are many different ways to heaven. They're spiritual people. Sound familiar? People are an awful lot like 21st century Americans, and therefore we should pay close attention to the way the apostles tailor their gospel message for them. The second realization I had hit a little bit more closely to home. As I watched them preach the gospel to this Gentile audience, I realized I stink at sharing the gospel. (laughs) Paul and Barnabas are pretty good at it. (laughs) 
<laughs> pretty good at it. Me? Well, I've got a lot to learn. What about you? What's your self-assessment of your skill at sharing the gospel? If you're like me and you would say, my evangelism needs improvement, I don't know about you, we've been doing the Who's Your One campaign throughout this year, a, a challenge to be praying and actively sharing the gospel with unbelievers, one person each month. One of the things I've learned about that is that my evangelism needs improvement. I'm not doing a great job at it. But can I get better? Oh, I believe so. I believe so because God, God has committed to equip each of us to share the gospel. Christ has sent every Christian on a mission trip to proclaim the gospel, and he hasn't left us without the tools to do the job. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Hebrews 13 says that God himself will equip you with everything good that you may do his will. We have his spirit for power and boldness, his word for clarity. And here in Acts 14, we have examples like Paul and Barnabas that show us how. And I think perhaps the biggest takeaway for us from these men's ministry is to know our audience. Know your audience. Well, you need to know the gospel. Be clear on that. Step number two, know who you're talking to. <laughs> Turns out the best preachers are the best listeners. Paul and Barnabas knew their audience. That's why these sermons are so different, different audiences. So I want to walk you through their sermon, focus on their sermon here with three questions. These are questions about their audience that Paul and Barnabas knew the answers to, and it shaped their preaching. These are questions we will need to be able to answer about the people that we desire to share the gospel with, whether it's an individual or a crowd. If we can answer these questions, we can share the gospel with them more skillfully. Let me take you through these. Question number one. Question number one you need to be able to answer about your audience. What do they know about God? What do they know about God? Chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are in a Jewish synagogue preaching to Jewish people who only believe in one God, who knew the Old Testament, who knew the major events and figures, so they begin preaching without building any bridges on any of those things. But this crowd in Lystra, vastly different understanding of God, and we get our first hint in their response to Paul's healing of the crippled man from verses 8 through 10. Look at verse 11. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, Let's try reading that three times fast. I struggled with that one all week. Lycaonian. <laughs> the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Okay, first big difference. <laughs> this crowd is polytheistic. Very different than the crowd from chapter 13. They believe there are many gods, and because of the miracle that Paul did, they assume that these men are the gods in human form, and then get the whole crowd, uh, get the whole crowd going to make animal sacrifices to them, which may seem strange to us, but that's precisely what you would have expected first century pagans to do if they thought a god was visiting them. In fact, there were stories of mortals being punished if they didn't offer the right sacrifices to a visiting God. So these people are just covering their bases. That's all they're doing. But when the two apostles begin preaching, they take their view of God head on. 
Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, made of the same stuff as you, same passions. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, don't want to miss how offensive it is to call, tell people the things they hold most dear and believe about ultimate reality are vain things. Pretty bold. Boldness given to them by the Spirit. Now, they don't cite the Bible here like Paul did in Acts chapter 13. They don't cite the Bible, but they are teaching them the Bible. Make no mistake. You may have noticed, those of you uh, who are familiar with Genesis chapter 1, that this summary statement here sounds an awful lot like Genesis chapter 1. They're not citing the Bible, but they are teaching it to them. No need to be afraid of sharing biblical truth, even if you aren't quoting it. That's what we have to share with people, biblical truth. And they start with the most foundational biblical truth, the existence and authority of the one true God. There is only one God, they say, not many. And that God created everything. And therefore, if he created everything, including us, we owe him our very lives. Now, none of that is the gospel. Preaching that God created everybody isn't good news. <laughs> what if the God who created us is mean and cruel and petty? That's not good news at all. The existence and authority of God is not the gospel, but has everything to do with it everything to do with it. For if somebody doesn't know that there is one God who made everything and everyone and to whom all, we all owe our existence, the gospel won't make any sense. To them, the, go the gospel will solve a problem that doesn't exist with a God that doesn't exist. But what good is that? I have to start by asking, what does our neighbor believe about God? If they think there isn't a God, which plenty of people, 21st century America, non-religious, don't believe in a God. If they don't, ask them why. <laughs> ask them big questions like, why is there something instead of nothing? Chaos doesn't bring about order. Work through those kinds of things with them. Listen to them. Ask them further questions. Share the truth of Scripture as you get the opportunity, just like Paul and Barnabas. Don't be in a rush. Ooh, take, take this uh, excellent counsel from Tim Keller. Here's what he writes. Good for Christians to take to heart. Christian communicators, he writes, must show that we remember or at least understand very well what it is like not to believe. Christian communicators must show that we remember or at least understand very well what it is like not to believe. Even if you feel like a stranger in 21st century secular American culture, which you should if you're a Christian, this is a, str a strange place to be a Christian, but we aren't strangers to it entirely. <laughs> we live in it. We contributed to it. And we once walked as those who did not believe in God, so we have a history that we can draw upon. We know what it's like not to know God. 
And even if not, even if that's so far away in your memory, it's not hard to imagine. Draw upon that so that your neighbors can sense and that you and I could say, just like Paul and Barnabas do here, we're men and women just like you. <laughs> we're men and women just like our neighbors. And we need to help them get to the place where they can say, okay, God must exist, but what is he like and what does he expect of me? Then you can move on to question number two. Question number two. What do they know about sin? So what do they know about God first and foremost? Number two, what do they know about sin? The Jews, of course, had a well-developed understanding of sin and the consequences of it from what God had revealed in the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Old Testament. But, but Paul and Barnabas can't draw on that for this audience. These people had their own understanding of sin, their own understanding of right and wrong and proper behavior, and it wasn't based on the Bible. But what they do know is that everyone believes something about sin. Everybody's agreed that there's something wrong with us, we just can't agree on what, right? So Paul and Barnabas begin to address sin, and they do it in two different ways, using biblical categories, but again, without citing the Bible. First, middle of verse 15, look there again. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, I find it really funny that they say, we bring you good news to turn from these vain things. It's like saying, hey, good news, you're doing everything wrong. Like if your boss came into your office and sat down and said, good news, I looked over your work and it's terrible. <laughs> that's not good news. It's the next part that's the good news. <laughs> you should turn from these vain things to a living God. In other words, you're doing it wrong, but you can make it right. The gospel isn't good news without the bad news first. Got to understand the problem before we seek the solution. And sin is our biggest problem. And a big part of the problem we have with sin is that we don't realize it is our biggest problem. So, first definition of sin Paul and Barnabas give is this. Worshiping anything that isn't the true God. Vain things, that phrase means useless, futile, empty. In other words, they're saying you worship nothing. You worship nothing. You have given your life to nothing. That's what's packed into that phrase, vain things. And it reveals that sin is first a problem of what we love and trust. Sin begins in the heart, not with the hands. We give our lives our allegiance, our trust, our hope to something that cannot give life. Or the way it will be said in another place in the Bible, we worship created things rather than the creator. The first way they come after sin here is by labeling it as idolatry. You're worshiping idols. The second way they describe sin is in verse 16. Look there with me. In past generations... He, God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Now, you might, on a surface level reading of this verse, think 
that what they're saying is that the non-Jewish nations had God's permission to do this, or that God simply overlooked it due to their arrogance. But that's not actually the case. Walking in their own ways is another way to describe sin. Rather than listening to and obeying their creator, they listened only to themselves. So sin is idolatry on one hand, and then on the other hand, sin is disobedience. The nations have been in disobedience, and they haven't been left without a witness. That's what they say in verse 17. You haven't been left without a witness. Idolatry and disobedience. That's the the Paul and Barnabas definition of sin. It's the Bible's definition of sin. And even though they don't use those labels, that is precisely what they are preaching to this crowd. Idolatry and disobedience. That is the current state of the world apart from new life in Christ. And it puts us in danger of God's wrath. The Gentiles in this passage and our neighbors here share a common misunderstanding. They don't know, or they don't believe, that they're on bad terms with God. They don't understand what will happen if they remain in idolatry and disobedience. In a word, they don't understand sin, in part because they don't understand God. Back to answering the first questions. You know what our neighbors say and believe things? Many of us would have said and believed things like this before. If God exists, he must love all of us the way that we are. Or I'm a good person and I try my best, so I must be good with God. Or I'm not sure God is real, but, but if he is, there's no way he would send people to a hell or punish them in some way. We say those things because we underestimate the seriousness of the situation that we are in. To our own peril. And before we push that upon our neighbors, instead of throwing a Turner Burn sign at them, we need to understand what they think about sin so that we can help reshape it according to what the Bible says. What do you think is wrong with humanity in general? You could start a conversation with somebody like that. What's wrong with humanity? Ask anybody that question. I guarantee they'll have an answer for you. We love talking about what's wrong with other people. It's like maybe our favorite topic. There's so much moral outrage but it's directed at everyone else. <laughs> it's just that everyone else is the problem. Well, mostly politicians. And uh, elections are coming. Uh, most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> Bring us all together, probably. You want to help somebody with their understanding of sin, just ask them what they think about politicians. Get it out of them. One of our biggest challenges, I think, contemporary problem for evangelists like us that want to share the gospel, is to get our neighbor's attention off of everybody else and onto themselves. That's the big challenge. 
Got to get it off of humanity in general and onto themselves. What's wrong with you? That's where the real personal work of the gospel takes place. Each of us needs to feel the burden of guilt for our own sins and what that entails about our relationship with God and what that entails about our eternity with God. We have to reckon with that before we will understand and feel the relief that the gospel brings. For the gospel is only medicine to somebody who knows their heart is sick. And so we will have to take the time to understand. Paul and Barnabas had done their homework. Take the time to understand what our neighbors understand about sin and then direct them to the Bible's teaching. Things are not right between you and God. We will have to tell them that. Paul and Barnabas told them that. Things are not right between you and God. Your relationship with God is ruined by your sin, and you are in grave, spiritual, eternal danger. Someone must come to that place before they will embrace Jesus and join us in singing the kind of songs we've been singing this morning about being saved from his wrath. But we don't stop at sin, right? (laughs) We need to know what they believe about God, then we need to understand what they believe about sin, and final question. Question number three. What do they know about grace? What do they know about God? What do they know about sin? What do they know about grace? This gets us to the third and final verse of this sermon. And I have to be honest, this verse, verse 17, is the one that confused me the most. I'll tell you why in a moment. Verse 17. Yet, God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What? (laughs) Why do they end their message talking about common grace? Their message is, you've sinned and rebelled, worshiping false gods, but God has been nice to you anyway. That's my Cliff Notes version of their sermon. You've sinned and rebelled, worshiped idols, but God has been nice to you anyway. They highlight common grace rather than saving grace. It seems strange, doesn't it? As I mentioned earlier, look, Luke doesn't record the entire sermon here, and it's a thousand percent reasonable to assume that Paul and Barnabas preached Christ and him crucified to this audience. They got to the gospel, okay? Don't worry about that. They did it in every other recorded sermon. They did it here. But it's interesting that Luke doesn't spell that out for us. He gives us cliff notes. How they introduced the idea of the grace of God to a Gentile audience that would have had no foundation for it. And it's actually brilliant. They're highlighting the grace and kindness of God because that's precisely how you lead people to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. As the old saying goes, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Or as Paul would later write in Romans 2.4, 
Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? They expect the kindness of God in creation to help their hearers understand and embrace the gospel. Now, one great application of this passage is to enjoy creation with your unbelieving neighbors. Enjoy creation with your unbelieving neighbors. Practice hospitality, a, a, an instruction we find all over the New Testament. And, and this, church, this church excels at practicing hospitality. I, actually, my only burden is I want you to feel how important it is that you do this and let you feel the, the benefits of the effects of this in your ministry to unbelievers. Practice hospitality. Invite your unbelieving family and friends over to enjoy good food. Grill or smoke your best cuts of meat. Put out a charcuterie board if that's your thing. My favorite variation, the snackle box. You might put out a snackle box for your friends. Whatever it is, bring out the good stuff. Put out the good food and thank God for it with them. Invite them down to the beach at sunset and point out how beautiful the world is and how it must tell of a creator who loves beauty. Common grace is the most natural starting point for somebody that doesn't know the Lord. They may not know the Bible, but they know what a good meal tastes like. They know what a beautiful sunset looks like. They've marveled when they've looked up at the sky at night on a mountain and looked at all the stars and been like, wow. Here's the good thing about common grace. The grace of God only gets better from there. The grace of God only gets better from there. For God has, God has set out to display the glory of his grace and kindness. That's his program. He wants the universe to know and see that he is a forgiving and gracious God. And we repent of our sins when we are convinced that he is that kind of God, that if we, if we do the most vulnerable thing in the world by saying, I'm wrong, I've been wrong, and I'm sorry. It's the hardest thing to do in a relationship, right? But you know what makes it easier? If you know the person on the other side will forgive you and accept you anyway. Remember my own conversion. I was 19. I was directionless, purposeless, listless, barely succeeding at community college ended up at my brother's church's men's retreat. And while the gospel was being preached at one of the evening sessions, it all clicked. First thought, I have deeply offended God. I haven't done what he's asked of me. I've done the opposite. <laughs> Indulged in all kinds of things I should not have. I was my own God, I lived for myself. 
And that God, the God that I've been running away from, sent his only son to pay the penalty for me. And I know that right now, he stands ready to forgive me for everything I've done wrong. I repented because I knew that was true. I had faith in the true nature and character of God. And therefore, I repented of my sins and trusted in him. And oh, thank God I've never looked back. I repented because I knew he was gracious. God isn't stingy. He isn't stingy. And what we find from this sermon is that he is telling the world over and over and over again through every good thing every person gets to enjoy that he is a gracious and giving and generous God. But that reaches its apex at the cross, which is the greatest, clearest, most compelling demonstration of his graciousness and generosity of all the gifts that God gives to the world, and he gives many. But of all the gifts that he gives to the world, the greatest gift he gave was the life of his only son in exchange for the lives of sinners. And now, no matter who you are, if you will turn from your sins and begin to trust and follow Jesus Christ, you will never taste the punishment you deserve for rebelling against the God who made you. And better than that, even beyond that, the good things that you enjoy in this life will serve as preparation for even greater joys in the life to come that God is preparing for those who love him. Even the things you enjoy now will get better if you know the Lord. So, don't be afraid, my friends, to talk to your neighbors about common grace. For it is a great way to prepare them to understand saving grace. We, we can grow in the skill of evangelism. If your assessment today, like mine, is that you stink at sharing the gospel, we can grow and change. You know what the most frustrating thing about evangelism is? Can't guarantee the outcome. The most important part, the thing we're aiming for in evangelism, somebody actually coming to know the Lord and repent and experience new life, the most important part isn't in our hands. We work and labor but cannot guarantee the fruit. We see it in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. What happens right after the sermon? Paul and Barnabas' enemies come from the last town they were in and run them out of town, turn the whole town against them. They preached skillfully, had little to show for it. Look at how they describe their ministry in verse 27. When they arrived... This is back in Antioch from the church that sent them out in the first place. So this is the end of their missionary journey. When they arrived back in Antioch and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 
These men traveled, they preached, they made disciples, they put their lives on the line, were threatened and persecuted and argued with. Paul was stoned. But when asked to give a report about what happened, they don't talk about themselves. They talk about the Lord, what he accomplished, the door of faith that he opened to a world that doesn't yet know him. So it is for us. We, we work, and by grace, we do the best we can, and we grow in our skills, but the results are in God's hands. Listen, sometimes you'll share the gospel poorly, and God will use it anyway. <laughs> sometimes you'll share the gospel clearly, and it won't work at all. We don't grow in the skill of evangelism to ensure success. We do it because we love the Lord. He's worthy of our best efforts. We do it because he has committed to equip us for ministry, to give us everything good that we may do his will. And we do it with hearts gripped by love for our neighbors who want to serve them by the way we share the gospel with them so that they might come to know and trust and love the same Savior that we have. But whether the, the word of the gospel softens them or hardens them, God is the one in control of the outcome. We sow the seed and water it, but God gives the growth. So as we go about this most important work, our mission to proclaim the gospel, this is it. This is what we've given our lives to. As we go about this work, may we be faithful, skillful seed sowers, and may we watch as the kingdom of God grows in our neighborhood, our nation, and our world. We pray that it would. Lord, thank you that none of our efforts are in vain because you empower them, inspire them, use them for your purposes. Even if your only purpose in the moment is to humble us and grow us, None of our experiences are wasted. Thank you, Lord, for giving us more chances to grow. As people captivated by grace, we do want to serve you well without depending upon how we serve, depending on you, the Lord who gives the growth. So I pray that you would empower us to faithfulness and that you would give us faith to look to you for fruitfulness. And do pray that as our skills get sharpened as we share the gospel, Lord, that you would save even more people among us. For we desire, too, that they would turn from vain things to a living God, just like we have. Bring that about among us, Lord, for your glory, for the strengthening of your church, for, for the spread of the gospel here in Orange and beyond, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.